Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, July 19th, we are studying Psalm 98. In today's text, the psalmist calls upon all creation to sing to the Lord a new song, to praise the Lord for his marvelous works, because he will come to judge the world with righteousness. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you for having me. So we get started today, Pastor Speckard, talk to us about the Psalms in general. How should we approach this book, the Psalms, in order to receive it as the word of God to us? Yeah, this is a little bit different uh, than some of the texts we've studied in the past. And uh, I'm sure some of your other guests are, are, you know, kind of repeating this idea that with the Psalms, you have a different type of literature uh, than uh, some other places in the Bible. This isn't primarily narrative, uh, you know, the, the history-telling uh, type of literature that we would find in the books of Moses or uh, in the Gospels or in much of the New Testament. And and it's not even the type of literature we find, say, in like the, the New Testament epistles, where it's a little bit more systematic or exploratory um, with respect to Christian doctrine uh, and the ministry of Jesus. The Psalms are poetic, and poetry is just a different animal. Uh, and I'm certainly no a literary expert, but you don't have to be an expert to know that you read poetry differently uh, than you read narrative or some of the other types of literature we encounter. And, you know, so long as you know that, uh, there's a sense in which the, the poetic uh, form can really enhance the message of the gospel. Uh, and there's a reason that with the, uh, the book of Psalms, uh, you know, this was for God's people of the Old Covenant and for us yet today. Uh, this gives us tremendous material for worshiping God, uh, gathering together, praying and singing uh, these um, beautiful depictions of God's love and God's, um, uh, you know, disposition towards us comes out so profoundly in this poetic form. So uh, you do have to go maybe a little bit uh, more slowly uh, when reading the Psalms. It's not just reading a story. Um, you have to, to kind of think through how the like, the thing is laid out, um, but it's it's worth it in the end, uh, and and certainly a good uh, a good text for us to be studying today. So talk to us a little bit about Psalm ninety eight. Some of the background information, any context within the Psalter or within any of the rest of Scripture that'll help us as we look at these words today. Yeah, one of the things I remember learning in seminary was that you have to be a little bit um, cautious when trying to assign too much context to particularly the anonymous psalms uh, found in the Psalter, uh, because a lot of the uh, the ideas we have about how the, the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms, how it's structured and how the, the psalms link together, um, you know, that's not from the text itself. That's something that we've sort of 
uh, either tried to work out on our own or, or received from tradition. Uh, so, for instance, we might say of Psalm 98, it's in the fourth book of the Psalms, which tends to, uh, tend to contain uh, anonymous psalms uh, that have a little bit of a, a lament uh, to them, uh, sort of a, a sorrowful bent. Uh, and then, you know, we kind of surmise from that that these psalms uh, could have been either written or at least compiled uh, during the Babylonian captivity. And I think that's, um, that's a really helpful thing to know. But we do want to, uh, as, as my professor would have said, you know, take that with a grain of salt, uh, just because, you know, that's not, that's not something that Psalm 98 uh, identifies explicitly within itself. Um, but, you know, having said that, I think we can, um, it is interesting to think about as we're about to, to delve into the psalm. You know, this is a very joyful psalm, a psalm about culmination and enthronements, the victory of God. Uh, I think it's helpful to think of that in the context of uh, if the people were uh, singing this and praying this, say, during the Babylonian captivity, uh, it definitely puts the psalm in a place of sort of a, a hopeful looking forward uh, as how it would have been received initially by uh, the people of the Old Covenants there. And for us as New Testament Christians, obviously, we're going to be looking back to its fulfillment in Christ. But we also are looking forward, uh, as we all know, we're looking forward to uh, our Lord's coming again. And, and there is sort of that similar uh, hopeful waiting uh, that, uh, you know, God's people of the New Testament uh, uh, live in as well. So uh, I think that context is helpful for, for Psalm 98. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, to, to put that perhaps in the context of God's people waiting, maybe the Babylonian captivity, I think is helpful. Within the Psalter, just when you, and we have not been reading every single psalm here on Sharper Iron, we're doing selected ones during the month of July. But within the Psalter, in the surrounding psalms, this thought of the Lord being king or the Lord reigning, and even the, the thought of him judging, comes up especially in these late 90s in the psalms uh, going back like through 93 to about 99 the theme that god reigns that he is the judge really seems to to permeate many of those psalms and, and certainly i think is you know that's part of what we see with psalm 98 in terms of liturgical context how does psalm 98 show up in the church still today yeah so traditionally uh psalm 98 is appointed for the dawn of christmas day which to be totally honest, as much as I would admire pastors and congregations who uh, make use of that uh, that worship service and those propers, um, I've never been to a Christmas dawn service. But you can see, as we, as we get into this, you can see why it would be appropriate, uh, as we are, you know, the dawn of the incarnation, the coming of the King. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, wanting to sing a joyful noise at the arrival of the Messiah uh, would make a great deal of sense. And something that we, I think most people will be a little bit more familiar with is this psalm is the inspiration uh, for the hymn, Joy to the World, uh, which of course is uh, in our context, a very, a very popular uh, Christmas hymn. Uh, it doesn't have to be Christmas, but uh, that's when we typically sing it. Uh, and it's inspired one or two other hymns as well. So um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot here that will be familiar to people. Uh, and, and certainly that Christmas arrival of the King uh, is a theme that that permeates this psalm, and as you said, the psalms uh, surrounding Psalm ninety-eight. So, since since we're talking with liturgical context, and you've brought up the hymn "Joy to the World" that is usually sung at Christmas, I don't know that I've ever sung it outside of Christmas. But you just said it doesn't have to be a Christmas hymn. With the the theme, especially the Lord judging the earth here, that's not necessarily something we think about with baby Jesus in the manger on Christmas. 
And yet it is an Advent theme, the, the season that comes right before okay. Christmas. Maybe talk a little bit more about the overlap of those themes and how in a psalm that we're saying you can use on Christmas dawn, we're going to see the themes of the Lord judging the earth and the joyous news of the King coming. How do all those things kind of weave together? Oh, yeah. And it, that's exactly what it is, is a wheeze. And, and the liturgical seasons help us to understand that when we when we get into the season of Advent, we know we're not we're not just remembering the coming of Christ. We're also looking forward to his coming again, as he has promised to do. And so anytime we're thinking about that, you know, that coming, that arrival, that Advent concept, uh, there is going to be a connection. Uh, and the way that Jesus came uh, the first time, so to speak, when he was uh, born in Bethlehem, um, there are connections to the way that he will come the second time in order to judge of the world and his whole ministry, uh, you know, the salvific nature of his life, uh, death and resurrection, uh, that sort of informs what we are to understand about the coming judgment. Um, what Jesus did, what he accomplished for our sake, and that's something that's kind of a big deal in Psalm 98. Uh, you know, the way that the king comes provides a ton of hope for uh, not just his people, but particularly his people who are experiencing a sense of um, you know, being refugees, uh, whether we're thinking back to the old covenants, you know, as if these Psalms were compiled while the people were in Babylon, but also us as refugees in the Valley of shadow here, uh, refugees, even with respect to our own sin, uh, knowing that, that the King comes not to destroy, uh, but rather to salvage and to redeem, uh, that that's the source of our hope. And furthermore, that the King is victorious. Um, is a huge deal for Advent uh, because that, you know, the whole idea of a people waiting in darkness, um, you know, those those Israelites uh, or those Judeans during the Babylonian captivity, uh, they had not experienced a victorious king. Uh, their king had been defeated. Uh, they were captives, and yet they looked forward to the true king coming and vindicating them. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the vindication we as God's children uh, receive yet today, and that's a big part of our Advent preparation, right? Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths. The King is coming, uh, and the King is coming for us. Uh, and that's what um, I think this psalm uh, draws out, and you can see why joy to the world, um, you know, the, the surprise in that is the joy. The King is coming, and it's not our destruction, but it's our salvation. Uh, so yeah, fitting for Advent, fitting as we think about the the return of Christ uh, on, on uh, the last day. Um, we don't have to be afraid. He will come, uh, and when he comes, it will be very good. Mm. Let's go ahead and take a look at this text from Psalm 98. A psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. 
He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's our text for today. That is Psalm 98. Pastor Speckard, looking at this psalm as a whole, how would you structure it? What are the are there stanzas, divisions that we can see? I think so, and and this isn't um, uh, certainly my idea. I think most most commentaries on this psalm will uh, divide it into three sections, each with three verses. And what we uh, particularly this is a big deal in the Lutheran tradition, understanding, um, you know, how is it that we sing to the Lord? You know, we're going to be thinking in terms of worship and. Uh, and when we gather around God's gifts and God's word. Uh, and what we want to notice is that the first stanza is, it starts with, oh, sing to the Lord, but then it immediately uh, goes into what God has done. He has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm uh, has worked salvation for him. Uh, the Lord has made known, et cetera. Uh, and that's just a great reminder for us that the worship of God begins not with our own activity, but it begins with what God has done for us. God serves his people. That's the foundation. Uh, of all Christian worship. So that's the first stanza, uh, you know, we might say verses one through three. And then verses uh, four through six, the next uh, triplet, uh, gives us this kind of expansion of the singing. After we we hear what God has done, uh, then you have the response of God's people, and the language is very much of the Israelites, you know, of the old covenant people, the, the instruments they used and the way that they would uh, typically sing together and worship God. Uh, the reference to the king, obviously, we've already kind of talked about how that would have been significant uh, to the Judeans, if, especially if this is kind of to be associated with the Babylonian captivity. Um, you know, the true king, obviously, is a, a big deal uh, in the Old Testament. And then the final stanza, uh, verses 7 through 9, uh, you have the the singing expand from the people of God of the Old Testament unto all the earth. Uh, and you have even creation itself uh, singing praises to God uh, for what he has done, uh, which is, of course, um, uh, you know, you see that a lot in like in the prophet Isaiah, you know, the good news uh, beginning with God's people, but then going out from God's people to all the world. Uh, obviously, for New Testament Christians, we have that great commission concept. Um, and then the end of verse 9 uh, brings it back to what God does. He will judge the earth with righteousness, the peoples with equity. We start with what God does. We end with what God does. And that's a really great model for uh, Christian worship. So uh, helpful in that regard. All right. So let's jump into that first section, verses one to three. Take us just into the first part of verse one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. So that new song language is really what ought to jump out to us here. The, um, I, you know, it's not the only place in the Psalter or in the Old Testament that we hear about this new song idea, uh, but it was an opportunity for us, or at least as I was preparing for this, uh, to think through, you know, if this is the new song, what is the old song? And uh, there was a commentary that, that really, I thought, uh, insightfully connected it to the old song would have been for the Israelites, uh, Moses in Exodus chapter 15, which was later quoted by Isaiah in uh, Isaiah chapter 12. Uh, you know, the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become our salvation. Uh, this is something that we sing in the service of prayer and preaching as the Old Testament canticle. Uh, this song of the victory of God's people, their deliverance uh, by the strength of the Lord, you know, that old song was foundational for the Israelites' understanding of who they were as God's people. Uh, they were the people whose God was able to deliver them 
from the hands of the Egyptians. Uh, they were the, the, the people uh, whom God had given this land and whom God continued to protect. Well, if we take it as read that this psalm is to be associated with the Babylonian captivity, that old song then would have been called very much into question, at least in the minds of the Judeans, you know, their God had allowed them to be taken captive. And now they were not in their land and they were not being ruled uh, by a king that God had established. And this new song then uh, sort of picks up the same idea that the Lord God is our strength, our song, our salvation. But it forces the people to not look back to the salvation, say, from Egypt, but rather to look forward to the salvation that comes when the true king arrives. Uh, the new song is going to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, promises going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And it's not just the geopolitical uh, sort of security of the Israelites in the promised land, but rather it is the divine deliverance of all people from sin, death, and the devil. Uh, so that new song is very, um, a really excellent segue into the New Testament, attaching it as we do to the coming of the Messiah. Mm. We'll carry that forward into the New Testament. We did just study the book of Revelation here on Sharper Iron in the previous months before the, the Psalter. And that new song, I think, figures prominently there. So how, how does that carry into the New Testament? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. The, the new song of salvation uh, is, and you just can't stress this enough, uh, and particularly when studying a book like Revelation, where, you know, I think, um, you know, you, you surely want to uh, remind people, don't, don't disattach these concepts like salvation or victory or whatever it would be. Um, you can't separate those from the person of Christ, right? That the new song is fulfilled in, manifested by, uh, it is Jesus. He is the song, uh, the victory, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all for our sake. Um, and, and you see that, you know, throughout the, uh, the New Testament, you know, even we have in verse one um, of this psalm uh, is sort of referenced in the Magnificat in Luke chapter one, uh, when, when Mary is singing of, uh, the Lord God, um, uh, his holy arm bringing about the salvation of his people. Um, that, that New Testament arrival and victory of the Messiah, uh, that would have been the new song that was being sung uh, or, or preparing to be sung uh, already in the Old Testament, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, okay. So, all right, we've got the new song that we're going to sing to the Lord. Maybe just, just briefly, why is the, when it says sing to the Lord a new song, does that mean that the words always need to be new? Or, I mean, how does that, when we sing maybe familiar hymns like Joy to the World every Christmas, are we still singing the new song? How does that work? That's a really great question because I do think, you know, anytime we hear about, uh, you know, the Lord doing a new thing, there's maybe a, our initial reaction is to think, okay, well, we always have to be refreshing what we do. It always must be new. But that's not the newness that, the scriptures are talking about. It's not new in the sense of, uh, you know, it has to be different from last year. It's new in the sense of New Testament, uh, new in the sense of, um, you know, the, the fulfillment of the old in the ministry of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. That's the new song. And once that, that uh, ministry takes place and once our Lord's uh, victory has been won, then the new song in a way becomes an old song, right? Because we're looking back uh, to the time of the Gospels. We're looking back to what Jesus did. But as we know from the book of Revelation, that, you know, it's not just a past reality. It is a present and future reality. In fact, in Jesus, 
sort of all time gets swallowed up and the new song becomes the song of eternity. Uh, this it's, it's not new as in, um, you know, contemporary to 2023. It's new as in forever, the fulfillment of the old, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that's a very helpful thing for us to keep in mind as we think about what it means for us to participate in this new song still today. So that's the first part of the first verse, sing to the Lord a new song. He has done marvelous things. And then to specify how those marvelous things have come, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Help us into that second part of verse one. Yeah, like I said, that phrase you kind of see echoed in the Magnificat uh, in Luke chapter one. Um, I think that there's a little bit of a, um, uh, and I'm not enough of an expert in sort of the Hebrew idioms there to, to know if there's there's more to the right hand and the holy arm other than what what jumps out to me is when you think about the right hand of God, the holy arm, what we're going to be thinking is uh, in terms of strength, right? The strength of God going forward for the salvation of his people. And what we know now, uh, and what's kind of the the great uh, mystery of the gospel, uh, is that God's right hand is extended not so much in strength and might and power, but rather in humility and lowliness of heart uh, for the sake of uh, the salvation of sinners. Um, I was just doing a Bible study this morning with a, a men's group, and we were looking at Zechariah chapter 9 and kind of the, the triumphal entry, Jesus uh, arriving in such a humble way to Jerusalem. We think also, uh, of course, with this psalm of the birth of Jesus being not what we would expect for the birth of a king, uh, but rather born in such a lowly estate. Um, that really captures the way God's arm is going to work for his people. Because if God came in swinging wildly, just defeating sin, death, and the devil wherever he encountered it, well, then sinners are going to perish. And that doesn't save us at all. But rather, it's the gentleness of God's gospel, the lowliness and the humility with which he extends his salvation through his son that allows sinners not to perish, but rather to be redeemed uh, and, and sort of welcomed back into the family, uh, even as sin is defeated. So as the psalm continues, his right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Talk to us about verse 2. Yeah, that's, that would have been such a big deal uh, for the old covenant people of God. Uh, their standing amongst the nations is kind of theme that uh, comes up time and time again as this little people uh, who were so recently sojourners are now um, standing in the midst of these, you know, geopolitical giants, right? Whether we're talking about Egypt or Persia or Assyria or Babylon, you know, there here are the uh, here are the little Israelites, uh, and this idea of them being vindicated, right? Their claim of being the true people of the true God, uh, their claim for the land that they inhabit, being based upon the promises of the God of Abraham, um, you know. They, that was not something that the, the, the other nations always uh, accepted or, or thought much of. Uh, in fact, it was something that would have been uh, scoffed at probably. And for the people to see their claims vindicated, not just in their own sight, but in the sight of all the scoffers, all these other nations who never thought that they were the true people of the true God. Um, you know, that's obviously a, a big component, component of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And we see that in, in texts like the Nunc Dimittis in the, uh, in the New Testament as well, as we think back to the Gospel of Luke. Um, 
you know, that it's not just that the Israelites, um, uh, you know, the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, obviously being a, a wonderful gift to the world, but the Israelites themselves are vindicated so long as they see their vindication in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the true Christ. One of the things that, that stands out to me, especially as you get into verse 2, is the way that various terms stand parallel to each other. So the Lord has made known his salvation, and then he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The way that, that salvation and righteousness stand parallel to each other, you mentioned the poetic aspect of the Psalms. That's one of those things. That seems pretty significant, especially as we think about those words within the context of this psalm and really in the Psalter and elsewhere in the scriptures. Absolutely. For me, it comes to, you know, we're, we're uh, doing a study on Romans yeah. uh, here in my parish. And, and yeah, for the, the salvation of God's people to be so intimately tied to the righteousness of God going forward. And then the question is, well, how does that righteousness go forward and how is that righteousness received? And I think that's sort of the underlying um joy in this psalm is that the king is coming his righteousness is going forth and somehow sinners like you and me aren't caught up in a flood of judgment but rather it comes in the form of salvation and that's the that's the gospel um and so yeah for those two terms uh, salvation and righteousness to be tied together um you know that that's a little bit of a surprise we would expect the righteousness of god to be coming in the form of judgment against sinners like us but rather it's salvation and uh, I think you're absolutely right. The verse two really, really connects those two concepts. Mm, right. And and these are things that the Lord has made known. He wants this to be known in the sight of the nations. I think that's a, a good connection there to Christmas. The Lord wants these things to be revealed, and he does reveal them. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, you almost can't, uh, when anytime we hear about this good news going forth to the nations, uh, the, the gospel narrative is going to, to spring to mind. Uh, whether that's, as I said, the Nunc Dimittis uh, at the arrival of the Messiah or the Great Commission at the near the end of our Lord's ministry. Um, this was not just for a uh, specific uh, tribe of people anymore. Uh, this is for all humanity, uh, which, of course, gets referenced at the end of this psalm as well. Uh, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the, all, and the peoples, plural, uh, with equity. Um, yeah, it's, it's for everyone. That's right. That's right. So we're going to keep looking at this psalm, Psalm 98, on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Dan Speckard this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 19th. We're studying Psalm 98 with Pastor Dan Speckard. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. 
Pastor Speckard, prior to the break, we've looked at the first two verses of Psalm 98 and verse 3. The psalmist writes, He has, the Lord, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Again, I think we have words that help us to understand what salvation, righteousness indicate. Now, this involves the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. That's to the house of Israel, but it is for the sake of all the ends of the earth. Take us into verse 3. Yeah, and verse 3 here has, you know, I think um, uh, one of those words that uh, is going to come up constantly in the Psalter. I'm guessing you've, you've, you'll have you have talked to other guests in other Psalms about this Hebrew word. Uh, it's pronounced kesed, uh, and it's typically translated in English, steadfast love uh, or love and mercy. There's a few different ways people translate it, and it's kind of a, uh, and again, I'm not a, an expert in Hebrew, but I remember learning uh, this is a challenging word to sort of convey in English, because what it is, is it's not just love in sort of a vacuum, but it's relational love. It's love that uh, is made manifest in the context of a specific relationship. Um, so Luther, uh, I understand, defined this word, God's goodness in action. Uh, so, you know, the, the love of God, uh, you know, God being love, um, exist whether we are aware of it or not, or whether God loves us or not, right? That's that's sort of secondary uh, to the reality that God is love. And then this word captures the fact that God's love has been poured out for us, that God does in fact love his people uh, and loves them in a way that transcends even the hate and the sin and the falling away of those people. Uh, and that this is the whole gospel. Uh, this word captures everything we as Christians believe and certainly everything we're trying to share uh, with our neighbor. The fact that God's goodness isn't just floating off in heaven somewhere and we're trying to get to it or it's eventually going to come uh, and we're going to be judged according to it. Uh, but rather, uh, God's goodness has gone forth in the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise, in the coming of his son, uh, the arrival of the Messiah, who is the King, uh, God's steadfast love is made manifest. And, and you you really would be hard-pressed to find a better nutshell explanation uh, of the gospel than that simple word, that chesed idea, um, that God's goodness has gone forth for our sake in the form of steadfast love. Mm, yeah, now talk about how that then goes from Israel to the ends of the earth. Yeah, and this, this is the Old Testament, uh, speaking of kind of nutshells, I mean, this is the Old Testament in a, in a nutshell. After you have the, the prehistory in Genesis uh, chapter 12, God calls a man, uh, Abraham, out of that man comes a great nation, uh, and from that great nation comes the Messiah of the whole world. And certainly the arrival of the Messiah is going to be sort of very interwoven with the history of this specific people. But they're standing before God, and the purpose for which God called them, going all the way back to Abraham, was for the sake of the um, uh, Savior of all humanity. And so the Israelites are the ones through whom God works to bring about the salvation. And the salvation does indeed come to them first, uh, in that Jesus was born a Jew and is of the Jews. Uh, but then the um, ministry of the New Testament church, if we think in terms of Pentecost, or we already referenced the Great Commission, uh, it is very much uh, from the Jews out into every corner of the world. And this psalm really captures that, because here 
as we get out of the first stanza into the second two stanzas, uh, we're going to see what God has done, then the Jews are singing, then the world is singing, all because the steadfast love of God has gone forth uh, in the way that we see in the Old Testament uh, being fulfilled by and transitioning to the New Testament. All right, so take us into the the second stanza of this psalm, beginning in verse 4. I think this is one of the more well-known verses of the Psalter. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Take us into this verse. Right, and this is this is what we want to do. I think that um, you know, as I said in the introduction, this verses four, five, and six are kind of focused on how the Israelites would have uh, naturally responded to the love of God going forth. But uh, this has a, a sort of a universal um, uh, connection as well, because when uh, there's just when when good things happen, uh, when a salvation of this magnitude uh, is put on the table. Uh, we naturally want to respond. And this is a big part of what, what worship is. Um, and, and I love the model this gives us for Christian worship. Uh, it's not gather to make a joyful noise. Uh, if you start with the joyful noise, then you're sort of, you're putting it all on you, the performer, the actor, we're doing something for God. Well, that's not primarily what worship is. Worship primarily is receiving what God has done gathering to be fed, gathering to be forgiven, gathering to um, hear again uh, the, uh, the, the, the story of the, the arm of the Lord going, going forth for our salvation. And then we have this chance to respond. And of course, we're going to respond joyfully uh, because the news is so very good. And I think what's really important in verses 4, 5, and 6, and, and 7 and 8 as well, you know, the, the psalmist is putting this in the framework of how we sing and how we pray and sort of that that rejoicing imagery. But it's not just that. It's actually a whole, um, uh, it gives us a new framework for living our entire lives. That our entire lives now as redeemed people of God are going to be a joyful noise. Our every thought, word, and deed ought to express the joy we have at having been saved. That's how good the news is. Um, and it's in response to what God has done. Mm, yeah, and I, I think it's, it is important for us in our day also to emphasize not only, as you said, that our entire life does become a joyful noise, but that we should sing it to the Lord. I mean, that, that singing is a part of our lives as Christians. Again, I, I don't want to, to make it all about singing, but I, I think there has been within the last several you know decades a loss of congregational singing, and that's not always as important. The Lord wants us to sing, and it is important for us to sing. And I think it, it becomes, I mean, the more we understand what the Lord has done and we rejoice in that, singing does become a natural part of, of who we are as Christians, especially as a part of our corporate worship. That's a really good point. And I think that that's, if you read the scriptures, I mean, this is what this is what God's people do. Uh, we've already kind of talked about Moses after they're delivered from Egypt. He sings. Isaiah, when he's, um, uh, you know, proclaiming the, the coming of the Messiah in that Old Testament prophecy, uh, incorporates a song. Uh, the, you know, we already mentioned the Magnificat. Uh, all of these songs in the scriptures, what do the, what do the, they do after they leave the upper room prior to our Lord's arrest? They sing a hymn. This is what God's people have always done. They gather together and they sing for joy. And I, I couldn't agree more in terms of congregational singing. Um, uh, not, and, and I might just add to that idea, uh, the idea that somehow singing isn't masculine uh, is such a, a massive loss uh, in recent generations. Um, 
that, you know, singing is seen as something that women and children do, but men not so much. Well, that's just not the case at all in the scriptures. And, and really throughout wherever you see society flourishing, uh, you have men uh, creating uh, music uh, and singing songs and leading their families and their people in song. Um, I heard somebody say once that one of the, the surest hallmarks of a healthy congregation is that the men sing. Uh, and I think that's right on. I think that particularly Christian men, uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why wouldn't we sing? And the answer is going to be something along the lines of uh, pride or derision or scoffing. Well, that's not, that's not how we receive the gospel. Uh, we receive it as children. We ought to sing uh, like God's children. And um, I'm glad you brought that up because that is important. Yeah, and I, it's just something I, I like to remind people today still, that, that singing is something God gives us to do, and what a joyful thing it is. How, how much the, the devil is beat back when we sing the Word of God. I mean, not, not only because of it is the Word of God, because of the joy that we have in singing to the Lord. It's such a, a wonderful thing, to the, to the point that perhaps it's perceived as not masculine today. That is unfortunate, and I think one of the places that I've, I've noticed it to, to counter that within our culture still is especially uh, with the World Cup, with the Men's World Cup, you yeah. you will often see those men standing there singing their national anthems, and and there's no one who thinks that they are less manly for that. And so, I mean, how much more for Christian men to sing to the Creator in allegiance and enjoy to Him? This is something that God gives to us, and, and certainly it is a I mean, what a wonderful privilege that we are allowed to sing to make this joyful noise that it is not about the the beauty of the singing, but that beauty comes from the joy and from the Lord who, who gives that joy. And so, yes, sing now and join in that song that we will be singing for all eternity to the Lord. And the that's song, a, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's exactly right. And I'm glad you said it because it's that singing now is, is merely a foreshadowing of the singing uh, that we will be engaging in in eternity. And we know we will. Uh, we, we have that picture of what eternal life with God looks like, and it involves singing. What are the heavenly hosts doing now? They're singing, and we reference that in our communion liturgy, uh, certainly the book of Revelation. Uh, this is what the people of God do. Uh, and I love World Cup connection, that, that full-throated, um, what, what is it? Just kind of the, the joy coming out uh, in song, um, we ought not shy away from it because right now we have these things. Uh, it's not just something past or future. Today, uh, the king is uh, victorious for our sake. Uh, why wouldn't we sing? Yeah, that's right. That's right. The the full throated joy just coming out reminds me of the in the moment in the service of the sacrament when the the pastor says, "Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven." We laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, and then the congregation sings the Sanctus. This is what yeah. Christians do. We sing for joy. Now, Psalm 98 also mentions several different instruments. What, what does the, why is this significant that these instruments are mentioned here? Yeah, I think these instruments, uh, you know, if you, if you read the Old Testament, you just, you see these coming up uh, over and over again. And these are the instruments of God's people. Um, you know, the lyre in particular, that, you know, this, um, uh, it's sort of a, a wonderful thing to remember that these were a real people at a real time. They had real instruments and they sang real songs. And so it's just kind of, to me, this is just an anchor point of remembrance 
that this is the people of God. This is how they sing. Uh, we don't make use of the lyre so much anymore uh, or of harps. And, and even, you know, horns uh, have kind of, you know, are, are less and less frequently used. But they did. And this was their song. Uh, and so whether or not we, you know, use the exact same instruments, it does provide an anchor point uh, for the origin uh, of this good news. Mm, right. And so even even those musical instruments, the Lord, the Lord's people make use of in their praises of him. Now, as I mentioned from our conversation toward the beginning in the context, many of these psalms here in the late 90s mentioned the fact that the Lord reigns. And here we have that same news in Psalm 6, that these instruments are used to praise and make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Talk about this, that the Lord is king. That's, I mean, that's everything. It would have been everything uh, to the Judeans. Um, you know, the, we all know the story of how the, the Israelites sort of went back and forth with uh, what a king was supposed to be. Uh, we know that, you know, the kings, uh, they sought, uh, remember, they didn't have a king initially when they entered the promised land, uh, for the Lord was their king. Well, they wanted a human king. We know how that went. Uh, they certainly experienced what it looks like uh, to have less than uh, excellent kings. Um, and then they were experiencing what it would have felt like to be ruled by a king, not their own. So to have their God be proclaimed as true king, king over the Babylonians, king over the Persians, king over the Egyptians, king over, you know, if we think ahead in the, the context of uh, the ministry of Christ, king over the Romans, uh, king over all the world. Um, again, there's a sense of vindication uh, for the people of God. And um, to be of the king's people, uh, you know, this is very much Advent language uh, as we think back to, to kind of what we were discussing before. You know, the king shall come when morning dawns is one of, um, you know, I think that's that's one of the most beautiful lines in the hymnal uh, we sing uh, during the season of Advent. Um, this is what that psalm is conveying. Uh, God is king. He comes and he wins. Uh, and then the best news is his victory isn't against us, but it's for us. Mm, yeah, every time we hear Jesus proclaim in the Gospels that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, this is what we should be thinking about. And and this is Pro Professor Gibbs at the St. Louis Seminary often emphasized this to us as his students, that the, the kingdom of God isn't so much about a place, but it's about his activity, that the Lord is reigning. He is ruling as king. A and when you're being ruled over by by those who mean you harm to hear that the one who comes to rule over you is coming for your good that is a, a precious gospel yeah and that's a great connection back to that kessid idea from verse three the steadfast love of god it's not just that god is good it's that his goodness is poured out for you it's not just that god is king but that he's reigning as your king for your sake I love, I love that connection. That's right on. All right. So the Lord is king. That takes us through the end of the second stanza. Then we come into the last stanza. And now it's not just the people of God in Israel. It's not just the people to the ends of the earth, but it is all of creation that begins to join in this praise. Take us into to verse 7. Yeah, so verse 7 and verse 8, you know, the sea roaring, the rivers clapping their hands, the hills singing for joy together. Uh, our mind is going to immediately go back to Genesis 1 and 2, when God brings creation into existence. Um, and, and his kingship over creation uh, is going to be, um, uh, you know, obviously this is symbolic language. You don't actually have, uh, you know, the, the hills singing for joy together, the rivers clapping their hands. 
But we do know that creation is broken as a part of the fall. We do know that creation longs for the restoration of the king. And, you know, that imagery of all things being made right, that which is broken, being healed and fixed, uh, such that, you know, the, the very world in which we live uh, desires that the king be on the throne. Um, it, it just captures the, the, you know, the flow from fall to restoration. Uh, and you see that. You see that not just in, in the book of Genesis, but also in the, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. He uses very similar language uh, to describe what happens when the Messiah comes. Creation itself rejoices uh, because he is the king of creation. Talk about how why this is important, that this is the Lord's redemptive activity that is for all creation. I'm certainly people receive the, the great benefit of that. This is for us. What Jesus has done is for us. God's reigning is for us. But we also, it's for us as a part of all creation. Why is that an important thing to keep in mind? I think that's really vital because it, it puts our story into the context of the larger story. Uh, even as we are the crown jewel of God's creation made in his image uniquely, uh, it, it's not it's not just us in the sense of, um, you know, everything God has created, he created good. Um, and that restoration and the story of our salvation is happening within the context of, of all creation being broken by our sin and then needing sinners to be redeemed in order for creation itself to be restored. And it, you know, it, it informs so many things about not only our relationship with God, but also our ongoing relationship with the world in which we live. Um, it's a reminder to us that, you know, every everybody listening to this radio show will know what it looks like or feels like for creation to be broken. Mm. Um, so we recently had in our neck of the woods uh, this this haze descend upon uh, our, our region from these wild wildfires in Canada and. Um, and obviously that's nothing compared to some of the other natural disasters that happen um, in various places. Um, to know that those happenings are a result of sin, finally, and that the victory over sin that the king wins is going to restore God's good creation such that uh, it no longer rages against us, but rather we are put back in the place of, um, you know, we think about Adam and Eve originally. Uh, creation was given to them for them to care for and that they would be provided for through it, um, that too will be restored. Now, the sea roars, the rivers clap their hands, the hills sing for joy together, all of creation rejoices. And that happens in verse 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Talk about this aspect of the Lord's work in Psalm 98. And I, I, that's a perfect segue because I think that um, it gives you a sense of uh, almost like victim and perpetrator. Uh, creation didn't break itself, right? We broke it. Humanity's sin caused creation to be thrust into this uh, this uh, totally broken state. Uh, and so the coming of the the king um, is is good news to the victims of our sin. Uh, and you always have to be so careful because if you personify creation too much, you can go down a road of uh, kind of unfettered environmentalism, and that comes with its own problems. But I do think it's helpful for us to remember our sin affects a great many things. And the coming of the king, it should be no surprise to us that creation rejoices uh, because creation just wants to be restored, just as victims just want to be healed. 
And, you know, that's obviously uh, for we who are sinners, uh, you know, there's more to the story. And we'll, we'll talk about what the judgment of God looks like for sinners. But there are a great many sinners who are also victims. And for the victims to maybe uh, take on a sense of rejoicing, uh, the one who is going to heal my hurt, uh, the one who is going to right the wrong is coming. Uh, I think that's really important for anybody who's been sinned against. Uh, even as it is for sinners. Yeah, I mean, you've used the word vindication several times in our conversation. I think that's a key word in this context and very much related to the matter of the Lord judging, that he He vindicates his people. He shows that they were right in his trust, in, in their trust in him, no matter what happened to them, even when they were sinned against. He vindicates. He makes it right. And that's very much an aspect of the judgment that's talked about here. So he's coming to judge the earth, then he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We have that righteousness word showing up again, and I think that's a, a pretty important thing that we talked about earlier. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's a you know the righteousness is a, a fundamentally it's of God, right? God is righteous, uh, and His righteousness pouring forth. Uh, if it weren't for the good news of salvation, uh, again, this isn't good news for sinners, right? The the, the fact that uh, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the King is coming. Uh, if you're an enemy of the kingdom, that means defeat. That spells uh, destruction. And so um, for his, uh, the, you know, the judgment to take place with righteousness, you have to bear in mind uh, the, the entirety of the gospel, how God's righteousness has been uh, poured forth through his son such that we have been made righteous and can rejoice at these things. Um, you know, and I think that that, that final phrase, and, and you know, the peoples would be judged with equity, um, sort of captures the sum total of it. Uh, that for uh, whoever you are, whatever nation, whatever kingdom, uh, whatever political affiliation, um, whether you are a sinner or a victim, and all of us are both, um, the Lord is going to judge according to his righteousness, not according to who you are, but according to what he has done for you through his son. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that concept of righteousness, we need to hear it and thank Jesus. And if we thank Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins uh, and his victory over sin, death, and the devil uh, coming out of the empty tomb, the Lord's righteousness isn't something to fear. It's something to receive by faith and rejoice in, um, whoever you are, wherever you're from. Well, connect that more closely again to the matter of judgment, because this is where, you know, we were talking about the connection to Christmas at the beginning, and we're thinking Psalm 98, okay, I'm going to hear this on Christmas, and I'm going to sing joy to the world, and then I hear by the end of Psalm 98 that the Lord is coming to judge, and that maybe strikes us as, well, that doesn't sound as, as good. Talk about, connect that thought of righteousness, and this is Jesus, to the fact that, that then judgment becomes something for Christians that we don't need to fear when God comes to do that. Right. And I think it's important to to talk about that because sometimes the gospel is presented in such a way that it, it's not that the rights are being, or I should say the wrongs are being made right. Um, it's presented as sort of a, a sweeping under the rug of, of sin somehow, that it's not really a true judgment. It's simply, you know, God is going to, in some way or another, um, whatever, pretend the bad didn't happen or something like that. Um, but that's not at all what divine judgment looks like. For righteousness to go forth means that anything that is unrighteous uh, is going to be destroyed. And that matters um, for, for a couple of important reasons. One, it, it helps us to understand what the gospel is. The gospel isn't that God 
is telling us our sin is okay. The gospel is that God is forgiving our sins and making us righteous so that when the judgment comes, uh, we're justified. Uh, but then also for victims, and I think you just can't stress this enough, um, God cares that you've been hurt. Uh, if you've been sinned against, God's response isn't to tell you to get over it because he wants the family to get along. Uh, you think back to, to Cain and Abel, and God hears the blood of Abel crying from the ground. Um, God cares desperately about making right what went wrong, uh, about vindicating the victim. Um, and, and so the nature of God's judgment is not to sweep sin under the rug, as I said. Uh, it is to uh, provide in the sacrifice of Christ not only forgiveness for sinners, but also, um, you know, I think it is that word of, of vindication uh, for victims, justice for victims. With about a minute, Pastor Speckert, help us to wrap things up on Psalm 98. Give us the good news from this psalm. Yeah, the good news is that the king is coming. Uh, a new song is being sung, and it's all about Jesus. And I think that, um, you know, we've kind of unpacked how that is a fulfillment of the Old Testament and a, a manifestation of the New Testament. I would just encourage everybody listening to embrace that new song, that joyful noise in worship, at home, in your lives. Uh, Christians ought to be people who live as though a joyful song is on their heart. And, you know, I realize that that, that can sort of be heavy law. It's hard to live joyfully all the time. Uh, and so then maybe as a final word, uh, let that be a reminder to do what God's people always do. If you're not feeling joyous, if the song sounds faint in your heart or your mind, go back to the source. God is the source of our joy, the source of our song. He delivers it to us constantly uh, through his word and his gifts. Uh, and that song will be sung uh, unto the last day, into all eternity. And it's a song for you. Pastor Dan Speckard is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 98. Pastor Speckard, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord a new song, the praise of Christ, who has won the victory over sin, death, and the devil for you. He comes to judge, to deliver the justification that he has won by his blood and righteousness. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 98, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>